Women of War is written and recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present, and sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to or discussion of assassination, attempted suicide, infidelity, and exile. It also contains naughty language and so may not be suitable for all listeners. All efforts have been made to ensure the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast, however, with the nature of historical research, there may be mistakes or inconsistencies. I'm Nicola. I am a teacher and a historian with an interest in gender and crime history. And I'm Hannah. I'm very full of dumplings right now, which makes me very happy. And when I'm not eating dumplings, I am a historian <laughs> who researches women who protested nuclear weapons in Australia in the 1950s and 1960s and other things, but that's my current focus at the moment. And welcome to Women of War! A podcast where we explore how women throughout time and space live their lives in the middle of a conflict. And is this our first intergalactic episode? No. Oh my! But <laughs> it is the first episode on a woman from South America. Frida Kahlo popped her head in to say hi in the past, but that's as far as we've gotten Isn't she to this from continent. Central America? Well, probably, but talking continents? Yes, that's valid. Yes. We decided it was time to get to South America. As always, when we deal with languages that are not Bogan Australian, we apologise for any incorrect pronunciation and promise that we're trying our best. And I'm just putting a coat on because it's seven degrees in my house. Sorry, that was a noise. You can re-record that bit if you want. <laughs> no, they need to know we're in Melbourne and it's very cool. We're right from now. Melbourne. We're from Melbourne. Yeah. We're from Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. Can't you tell by the three flat whites I'm holding? I know, right? All the black you're wearing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I am actually wearing. And wearing my savers outfit. This is all savers, but. <laughs> So we promised last episode that we wouldn't be doing any more women we know very little about for a while. And technically we have we have kept that promise. But I feel like this season is starting to turn into an exploration of how do we tell the history of a woman as an individual when all the history books talk about her in relation to a man. And which is not inherently a bad thing, but how do we tell the history of a woman when the reason she has become a figure in history is because of she's, she was to a man. She's the wife. Yes. And honestly, like, it's like the idea of all the quiet women who made history, like the women who made it possible. Mm. Like, this is one of my favourite parts about Hamilton the Musical, is that they really centre Eliza as the person who saves the story of mm. Alexander Hamilton. At yeah. least in the musical iteration, I'm not exactly sure how that was preserved, but I liked that. I also liked that Lin-Manon-Miranda, he, like, put the agency of Eliza's absence from the narrative in Eliza's hands because yep. we don't have her letters. Yeah. So in it he's like she's like she I am taking myself yeah. out of the narrative and it's like dope. Yeah. Um but yeah it's hard and you know it's most like we're, we're trying to tell the stories of forgotten women or women that aren't well known. Underappre- or even just women who have been reduced to the wife ro- yeah. role. And but it's hard when And there's nothing wrong with being all a the wife research either. about it is in relation to the man. It's also there's nothing wrong with being like no, a, of a chilled out wife. No. Who's just vibing. Nothing wrong with being involved in a man. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not going to make any jokes right now because I found out my students listen to this officially. So, <laughs> moving on. Hi, kids. So, we are going to South America, but are we going to to the family Madrigal in Colombia? Where are we going? Yes, we are actually going to Colombia. Colombia! We're going to a few different places today. Colombia. Uh, because we're going to learn about uh, Dona Manuela Sanz de Vegela y Espuru, or simply Manuela Sanz. 
Manuela was a revolutionary who fought for South American independence from the Spanish. So we're not looking at one war today, we're not looking at one country. Uh, we're going with the multiple wars that led to the eventual end of Spanish colonization um, of most of South America. And so with that in mind, let's begin insulting Spanish colonizers. But don't worry, they really deserve it. You're very anti-colonial right now, and I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of loving it. I, yeah, what can I say? What can I say? It's my current trend and I don't know why that might be. <laughs> Alright, so let us start with a brief rundown of the Spanish colonization of South America, which began at the end of the 15th century with Christopher Columbus arriving at Guanahani, which is now known as the Bahamas. So, quote, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, end quote, sponsored by the Spanish monarchy. His expedition was not the first European journey to make its way to the American continent. Vikings probably got there first. But Columbus's arrival did mark the beginning of European colonization of the continent. Dumbass that he was, Columbus thought he'd arrived in India, which is why the First Nations peoples living on the American continent have historically been called Indians or American Indians. Um, so, despite the Spanish finding the advanced civilizations of the Aztecs and the Incas, as well as many other indigenous populations who are doing really good jobs living their own lives in South America, the Spanish went, it's free real estate, in Spanish, and decided to set up shop. The Portuguese had also arrived in South America, remember them, those bastards, <laughs> and wanted their One own... One day we'll talk about Portuguese. Yeah. Portuguese. Portuguese colonization. Like, Portuguese and, like, the name Courtney sounds similar. I'm very tired. <laughs> you had too many dumplings. I had a really big coffee and all the dumplings. <laughs> Not at the same time. That's disgusting. Anyway, so the Portuguese had also arrived in South America and wanted their own little slice of this Portuguese tart. And so in 1494, the, po the Pope, because the Pope, you know, in charge of the world, if you're Catholic, he signed the Treaty of Tordesillas, which split the Americas through Brazil and anything, and said that anything to the West belongs to Spain, anything to the East belongs to Portugal, and I'm the Pope. So... So apparently I've decided what I say goes. I'm the Pope and I have kangaroo leather shoes. He's so generous. Does he? Well, he does now. Oh. I think. I, I heard tell of kangaroo leather shoes. I, even, I would like kangaroo leather Anyway. Anyway. So the Pope was on board with any Catholic countries colonising the Americas because that meant more people to convince them to convert to Catholicism. Plus more money from the exploitation of natural resources. And I'm sure it was definitely in that order and not the exploitation of natural resources that came first. <laughs> As a consequence of all this, indigenous populations in the Americas were decimated through introduced diseases, enslavement, and just plain old massacring. We're not going to go into much more detail on the colonization period for now because that will come at some point in another episode. What you need to know for this episode is A, Spanish colonization happened and it was as awful as any colonization in the history of humanity, and B, the Spanish ruled over much of South America for around 300 years. So, 300 years later, by the 18th century, the 1700s, the Spanish Empire was ruled by the Bourbon monarchs. They're related to the French monarchs, aren't they? Yes. Yes. I think European monarchy is very incestuous. Uh, and there can only be like so many famous royal families called the Bourbons. Yeah. Yeah. Bourbon. Bourbon. The Bourbon is Bourbon. <laughs> the Bourbons. Yes, the Bourbons. So the Bourbons implemented sweeping reforms to how the empire was governed, attempting to make the ruling system more efficient, make sure the colonies were still loyal to the crown, and decrease the influence and the power of the Catholic Church. 
so they can't be that French. These reforms were unpopular with many sections of Spanish-American society. By this point in the history of the Spanish colonies, there were clearly defined hierarchies between the peninsulares, who were born in Spain but lived in Spanish America, and criollos or criolles, who were of Spanish descent but born in the colonies. In the Bourbon reforms, peninsulares were given the key political positions while criollos were kept out of the government. At the opposite end of the hierarchy, the indigenous peoples of Spanish America were used as forced labour to exploit the land's resources, while mestizos, who were the descendants of indigenous people and Spaniards, were systematically discriminated against and barred from positions of power. So it's a multi-tier, mixed levels of hierarchy. Yep. So if you were born in Spain, you're at the top, and then... As it goes, it goes down based on being born in South Spanish, South Spanish America to Spanish people, to Spanish people, and then to a mix mm. of a Spanish person and an Indigenous person, etc. And then, if you're fully Indigenous, I assume you're at the bottom. Yeah, sounds kind of like the racial hierarchy in apartheid era South Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The early 1800s was also a period when the ideas of the Enlightenment were growing in popularity. Science, politics, philosophy, literature, art all challenged existing ideas of how modern civilization should be in favour of exploration, scientific inquiry, and individualism. These ideals, particularly those of individual rights, were one of the drivers of the American Revolution in the 1760s and the French and Haitian Revolutions in the 1790s. And if it sounds like there's a rocket ship currently taking off <laughs> in the recording, it's because the heater is because it's, it's cold in this room. So... Ignore that. There are no rockets. I'm really sorry. Don't be sorry. Also, it is our first intergalactic episode, so here <laughs> we go. Whee! It's like um, the magic school bus. So, the ideals of the Enlightenment also made their way to Spanish America, sort of coming, you know, via French and France and America and Haiti. And I think especially Haiti. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. We always forget about Haiti because we're racist. And not in, like, a deliberate way, but just in the sense of, like, oh, the French Revolution changed the world. It's like, so did the fucking Haitian Revolution, mate. Yeah. But in French. Yeah. And yeah. Haiti is geographically closer. Yeah, and they also had that similarly complex um, yeah. hierarchical system yeah. of, like, who's born in France? Who's born in Haiti? Two yeah. French people. Blah, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, these combined with the tensions between the Bourbon monarchy, Bourbon. the Peninsulares, and the Criollos nurtured a growing independence movement in Spanish America. Added the examples of how to throw a monarchy put forward in some of those revolutionary countries, and the situation was ripe for something to spark a movement for independence. So in 1808, I assume this is the OG, Napoleon, mm -hmm. in his quest to be crowned best example of nepotism before Hollywood, decided to put his brother on the throne in Spain and get rid of the Bourbons. Perhaps he liked rum better. Ha! <laughs> nice. Well, he's French, he would like wine. Mm. Yeah, Shush. sorry. Um, Don't critique my joke. <laughs> Spain had been an ally of the First French Empire and originally supported Napoleon in his campaign for Europe, but tensions within Spain were growing between the Spanish citizens and those who styled themselves as French citizens. In 1805, the Spanish navy was defeated at the Battle of Trafalgar, which meant that the French no longer really needed Spain as allies. This naval loss also contributed to an economic crisis, which added to food shortages caused by the war with Britain. Spaniards high up in the Bourbon court began to express a disagreement with the Franco-Spanish alliance, and Napoleon decided he needed to do something to make sure Spain didn't stab him in the back. So he stabbed Spain in the back. In early, 19, <laughs> in early 1808, sorry, Napoleon sent troops to occupy parts of Spain. In March, frustrated Spanish citizens led an uprising against the king, Charles IV, in favour of his son, Ferdinand VII, who was a very gentle bull. 
Napoleon invited the two Bourbons to a conflict resolution seminar, and then he forced them to abdicate in exchange for promising that Spain could remain Catholic. He then declared his brother Joseph Bonaparte the King of Spain, and he became Joseph Bonaparte. I don't think that's how it works. Joseph! Funnily enough, the Spanish citizens did not agree with this decision, and in May began revolting against Joseph. Soon the Spanish provinces began declaring war on Napoleon. Napoleon sent his armies into Spain to hold the country, and the next five years were marked by continued warfare within, within the country. And France is like, the fuck's sake, how long have we been doing this? The result of this warfare was the complete breakdown of Spanish systems of governing. Not only were the royals removed as the head of state, but the central government was thrown into disarray, leaving the only governing bodies still intact local governments. These local governments were led by juntas, small groups of mostly upper-class Spaniards. The juntas claimed that they had the only legitimate authority to rule, as, in the absence of a king, rule should revert to the people. Yet though they said they were merely placeholders until the legitimate monarchy was restored, the juntas styled themselves as monarchs. In September 1808, the provincial juntas joined into the central junta, much like they do in, uh... When the Power Rangers, like, yes, merge into you. one giant. Yeah. Is that what like, you were actually yeah, thinking? I was, I, was, I could see the Power Rangers, and I was like, my brain just stopped with yeah. words and what they were called. Yeah. Anyway, so... The central junta declared itself a national government under a president. President. However, the central junta struggled to hold on to power and fight off Napoleon at the same time, which multitasking is hard. We and you're that. also just in this giant, like, shape of a giant Yeah, it's junta. very hard so, yeah. when you've only got one giant arm and one giant leg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in early 1810, the central junta was replaced by the first Regency Council, a collection of five old regime political elites. The council also struggled to hold on to power, with many Spaniards arguing that it was not a legitimate government. Because it wasn't. Uh, or maybe it was. Who cares? The unrest and political destabilisation from mainland Spain, Spanish major, <laughs> spread to the colonies. Napoleon sent emissaries to the Spanish colonies in South America to attempt to convince colonial officials to accept French rule. But Napoleon was never super stressed about this, and when the emissaries were unsuccessful, Napoleon was like, I'm going to focus on mainland Europe. I'm going to be emperor forever, by the way, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm going to focus on mainland Europe. In Spanish America, ruling elites began to get a real taste of independence from the monarchy. Cracks began appearing as political elites began arguing what was a legitimate system of ruling without a king on the Spanish throne, or at least a legitimate king. Some citizens attempted to seize control and create their own juntas in 1808 and 1809 in the different Spanish-American provinces, but these were suppressed by military action. By the end of 1809, nothing much had really changed in the Spanish-American colonies. The attempted coups had been suppressed and old officials remained in power. They believed that Spain was ruled by a legitimate government in the juntas who were fighting a war against France. Colonial governments also had control of the military, who reported to the viceroys and provincial governments in the colonies rather than to a central military office in Spain. If any more threats to their power arose, they could put them down with full military might. So in early 1810, trying to assert its right to rule, the Regency Council promised the colonies would be able to set up their own representative government. <laughs> a promise that historically always comes to pass. However, with the council desperately trying to stay alive and in power in Spain, nothing was done. And more and more people in Spanish-American colonies began calling for independence, again establishing their own juntas to govern, this time with more success. In April 1810, citizens in Caracas launched a coup against the governor and set up a supreme junta. 
The one hunter to rule them all. One hunter to find them. <laughs> one hunter to bring them all. Which helps to bring them. in the darkness, bind them. them. So the Supreme Hunter was created to bring all of Venezuela under its control. In May, Buenos Aires followed suit and overthrew the Viceroy Governor to establish a hunter in the May Revolution. By the second half of 1810, all across Spanish America, more and more provinces fought to overthrow the established Spanish governors in favour of their own hunters. By the end of 1810, the governor in Peru was the only one who had not been overthrown in Spanish America. That's because the, um, the governor was Paddington. I don't think he was. Oh, okay. No. Paddington's grandfather. Paddington would be a great governor, though. He would be. Marmalade sandwiches for everybody. Yeah. Don't you Honestly, think, Mrs. Brown? Greatest socialist governor. <laughs> the hunters <laughs> in the colonies, however, followed the same logic as the hunters in Spain and argued they were placeholders while there was no legitimate king, and so they didn't try to cut themselves off from Spain because they're essentially waiting for Spain to sort its shit out, theoretically, and for the king to come back to Spain, and then they'd be like back on board with Spain being the ruler. Like, we, we kept the seat warm, Your Majesty. Pretty much. But not British. <laughs> we kept... I don't want to do that. Nope. All right. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. If it was just Spain, I'd do Spanish accent, but it's a little bit weird when you're a person from a colonising group doing the impression of the colonised. That's the difference. Back in Spain, it was unclear what was going on in Spanish America as they were having Wi-Fi connectivity <laughs> issues. It was hard to get straightforward information on the political situation and reports often offered co- conflicting news and there was also the time delay. With the Hunters declaring loyalty to Ferdinand VII instead of the council, the Regency Council, it was unclear whether the Hunters were operating under the belief that Napoleon had successfully taken Spain. The Regency Council in Spain did not have the military control necessary to launch a counter-attack to the Hunters in Spanish America. However, New Spain, which we are going to call... We don't mention it again. Ah, uh, New Spain, <laughs> comma, now known as Mexico, comma, and Peru, was still in the hands of loyal viceroys who supported the council in Spain. And though lo- local hunters had taken control in other colonies, there were still substantial loyalist groups who opposed the rule of the hunters. At first, the council decided to take a conciliatory approach, hoping to non-violently bring the hunters back into the fold. The Regency Council established the Cortes. Sure, a sort of national parliament, and the Cortes again promised Spanish Americans that they would have a voice in government. <laughs> wink, some... wink, we haven't got our fingers crossed behind our backs. Spanish wink. Ole. Alright. Um, some Spanish Americans did travel to Spain to participate in the Cortes, but the majority of seats were held by the Peninsulares, who were the ones who were born in Spain anyway, who were determined to promote the interests of Spain over the Spanish colonies. Like in most of these situations, the Spanish Americans wanted the same rights to representation as those in Spain, in this case, a representative for every 50,000 citizens. However, since the population in the colonies far outnumbered the population in Spain, the Peninsulares, rightfully, <laughs> worried that this would lead to policies that benefited Spanish America more than the homeland. Which, to be fair, time wise, they've kind of earned it by now. Yeah. To get around this, the Cortes. Finally- how it's like, mm. oh, if you have representative government, the people that need representation might get things. They fucking get represented. Oh, oh. Hi, kids. Um, so the Peninsulares worried this would lead to policies that benefited Spanish America more than the homeland. Mm. To get around this, the Cortes ruled that all free men were equal members of the Spanish nation and entitled to equal representation. 
but only if they could trace their ancestry to Spain or Spanish America, effectively denying free people of colour, generally of African descent, the same rights. In early 1811, the Cortes moved from a conciliation response to a military one. Whoops! And the Spanish-American Wars of Independence really begun. So how did Manuela get involved in all this? Manuela Sanz de... Why do I tell, make myself sound Yes, suck it. Manuela Sanz de Vergara y Asperu. Manuela was born in Quito, in New Granada, in December 1797, as a result of an extramarital affair between her mother, Maria Joaquina Aspuru, from Ecuador, and her father, a Spanish nobleman, Simón Sanz de Vergara y Yedra, I think. We say affair. With Simon being a married nobleman in a position of power, we don't know how much say... Joaquina had in the situation. Joaquina was the second youngest daughter of Don Mateo Jose de Azpura y Montero from Panama, a respectable attorney for Quito's governing body. Joaquina's pregnancy while unmarried could have caused a scandal, so it was kept secret and she was forced to give up Manuela after her birth to the nuns at La Concepcion Convent. Joaquina died only a few years later, and it's likely that Manuela never knew her mother. Now, where should we put this baby that was accidentally conceived? In the convent. La Concepcion convent. <laughs> Luckily for Manuela, her father was willing to recognise her as his daughter and provide for her. There's one good man out there. I was and, really surprised And he by was this around fact. in 1797. <laughs> Simon was a peninsular from northern Spain who had married into a wealthy and prominent va- family after his arrival in New Granada. Simon benefited from being born in Spain and was able to land himself important positions in the military and government. All of this was very handy when Manuela was born, as it meant he was able to financially provide for his illegitimate daughter and pay for her upbringing at the convent. Those greedy nuns. Unlike what you might imagine from a... <laughs> I mean, a... she does still need to eat. Nah, fuck And the nuns need to buy her food. The nuns don't need food for themselves, they just glide. But yeah. <laughs> So unlike what you might imagine for a convent at the time, La Concepcion Convent also benefited from the generosity of Quito's wealthy elite, occupying an entire city block. Life within the convent mirrored the social divides outside it, with around 100 white or Creole nuns in charge of nearly 1,300 servants. Who needs a servant when you're a nun? Whatever. You've read about the Catholic Church. Uh, The majority of whom were of indigenous descent. As well as chatting, or making lace, the Concepcionistas educated the daughters of the elite in ladylike accomplishments such as keeping indigenous people as slaves, <laughs> as well as reading and writing. Manuela regularly, Manuela spent most of her childhood at the convent, but she also regularly visited her father's house and grew up viewing her, half-brother, her half-siblings as true brothers and sisters. There is an element for Manuela of um, growing up in the convent with all those servants. Mm made her more aware of people outside her own That's social a good circle. Point, so like I'm I'm not, I'm not justifying I wonder this will I'm come not back justifying later. the nuns having also, servants. That is one thirteen <laughs> servants per nun. Yeah. You don't need thirteen servants per nun. But like a lot of in terms of for this story, that's part of that was kind of an important part of Manuela's early childhood. In like teaching her about the world. Yeah. Yeah. Is it thirteen servants per nun? Yes. 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 Because yes. you take the zeros off. Yeah. 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 So Manuel's status as a recognised daughter of Simon Sens is clear in his decision. <laughs> Simon Sens get married. <laughs> <laughs> Simon Sens recognise your illegitimate daughter. <laughs> Simon Sens take her to the nunnery. Simon Sens let her live with you. Alright. Sorry. Actually, it'd be Simon Sens take her to the convent. 
Let her live with you. Aha! Gotcha! I never said Simon Says. Sorry. Mama, just an underman. Manuela's status as his recognised daughter is clear in his decision to arrange her marriage to further his own business prospects. So she was clearly his daughter enough for him to be like, mm, you're my property now. <laughs> when Manuela was 19, she married James Thorne. Penis back on, sorry. Simon Says, ignore it. Nine. Eight, seven. <laughs> How much older than Manuela was James Thorne? <laughs> James Thorne, who was an English shipping merchant, he was 20 years older than Manuela. Mm. They married on July 27th, 1817, in Lima. For Manuela, marriage to a respectable, prosperous man like Thorne helped overcome some of the stigma that still remained around her illegitimacy. For her father, his daughter's marriage provided him with another business alliance. Like, just draw up a contract. Don't exchange a daughter. Simon says exchange a daughter. For Thorne, his marriage to Manuela became one of real love and affection. <laughs> Simon says adore and cherish her. <laughs> Sucks to be Thorne. Manuela became his confidant and Thorne valued her advice on his business concerns. By 1822, Manuela was effectively Thorne's business partner and she would travel for business by herself on several occasions as well as supervising their business affairs at home while Thorne was away. In fact... Manuela had a general power of attorney, which allowed her to act in Thorne's place when he was away on business of his own. So, living in Lima under the benevolent dictator Paddington, Manuela had a degree <laughs> of freedom rare for women living in Spain or Spanish America. Because it's a benevolent dictator Paddington. Yeah. Lima was a flourishing port city with people coming in from around the world to conduct business. Women living in Lima, known as Limeñas, could walk around the city unchaperoned, conduct their own businesses and interact with people from all different backgrounds. It was while living in Lima that Manuela began to really develop her political beliefs. In 1814, Ferdinand VII returned to power in Spain and sent troops to the colonies to put down the ongoing insurgencies. Though these forces successfully defeated the insurgents in Venezuela and New Granada, the army's harsh rule of the colonies afterwards only fanned the flames of revolutionaries. Creoles in particular found the army rule suffocating and more began to don red bandanas and think about republicanism as the way forward. Thank you. That's really good. That's just for you. Real Aussies will get that joke. (laughs) Wars between patriots and loyalists, i.e. republicans and monarchists, increased and women were at the centre of these conflicts. Women demanded that patriots include their rights when building their new republics. Upper-class women, like Manuela, held parties that served as political meetings for patriots and discussions of anti-Spanish sentiment. By 1817, when Manuela moved to Lima, women from across the class spectrum were spying, carrying messages, nursing, smuggling arms, and providing food and clothes for the patriots. In particular, they encouraged loyalists to join the patriot side, usually through bribery or other persuasive measures. Simon says, get your boobs out. Yes. In April 1818, General José de San Martín, an Argentinian former Spanish army officer, led patriots to victory at the Battle of Maipú. Maipú? <laughs> Sorry, Chile. <laughs> How old are you? Twelve! One of my students the other day was like, Miss, being in your class is like being taught by a smart, loud 12-year-old. No, it wasn't an emotional 12-year-old. I was like, thank you! <laughs> He's like, I don't know if it's a compliment. It's like, shut up. <laughs> Get out of my classroom. It's time for my nap. Alright, he led patriots to victory at the Battle of Maipú in Chile, effectively winning Chilean independence from the Spanish. San Martin's forces, high on their victory, set their sights on Peru and getting rid of the Spanish there. Lima's patriots were on board and made contact with San Martin to get his support for their cause. In September 1820, that's a long walk. Anyway, 
<laughs> San Martin's 4,500-strong Chilean-Argentine army arrived at Pisco in southern Peru. San Martin's campaign to take Peru from Spanish control faced many difficulties, including the fact that Spanish forces in Peru outnumbered Patriot forces nearly 4 to 1. Crossing the Andes into Peru, San Martin attempted to split the Spanish forces and trap them between the Patriot armies. During this period, the Spanish mainland was again suffering internal disarray, because of course it was. And after an 1820 military uprising, ousted Ferdinand and the new Liberal government reinstated the earlier Spanish constitution of 1812. Spain really looked at France and went, that mess over there? Let's do that. I do like that Tchaikovsky song there. It's quite nice. We're going to go down in history quite well, don't you? Yes, I do. Very nice. The Constitution established a constitutional monarchy. This, understandably, threw royalists into a bit of a spin. Sacre bleu! The king is no longer chosen by the gods. He is chosen by us. It's like, Man. we get the king, but we have this constitution thing as well. We didn't want that. As a result, the viceroy in Peru, Joaquin de la Pezula, was instructed to cooperate with the patriots and find a compromise. De La Pazula offered a deal to San Martin. Leave Peru, and Peru would adopt the Spanish constitution, which promised universal male suffrage and representation in government. San Martin said thanks. Gracias. But no nada, nada gracias. Independence or nothing. San Martin ordered his forces to surround Lima, cutting off the royalist capital from external support and marmalade supplies. <laughs> Manuela set out to get more men to join the Patriot force. Manuela, along with her friend Rosa Camposano, approached men in an important royalist Numancia regiment, bribing and persuading them to desert the royalist cause and join San Martin. Then again, we're kind of selling the men short, like, ooh, they saw her ankle and decided to join. <laughs> Honestly, these men have probably been away from home a long time. They're like, you know what? Yeah, yeah. they're independent. We can go home. Yeah. Uh, I'm willing to be pushed yeah. off this like, cliff. Uh, yeah. it, it was just one part of their repertoire yeah. of like persuasive tactics. Yeah. It was sort of like... I am a beautiful woman telling you about these great ideas. And I'm and making you think you've had these ideas. Yeah, exactly. These so it's yeah. sort of using all those different... It's a multi-pronged approach. Tools yeah. in, in the tool belt. It's the Swiss cheese model, but opposite. Her activities were helped by a pro-patriot campaign from among Numancia's officers, led in part by Manuela's half-brother. De la Pezula was overthrown and replaced by Jose de la Sona in Hinoyosa. Hinoyosa? Hinoyosa. Who again tried to convince San Martin to leave Peru in exchange for adopting the Spanish constitution, giving universal male suffrage. Again, San Martin declined, arguing that the Americas were not properly represented in the Constituent Assembly, because they weren't, and therefore the only way forward was Peruvian independence under their own monarch, King Paddington! <laughs> Based on how Paddington 2 went down. God, what a fucking great film. So good. I think, I really truly think Paddington would be a great king. Yeah. I would vote for him. You don't vote for a king, he's chosen by God. I would anyway. The king is chosen by God, don't you understand? (laughs) So Martin organised his forces to besiege Lima. De La Serna, the viceroy, fucked off, presumably because he couldn't be bothered dealing with San Martin, and San Martin was free to occupy Lima. He called for an open cabildo, a meeting of citizens to discuss the independence of Peru. Like a Soviet... Yes. But not with the workers. Yes. And no babies suckling at their mother's breasts and going, wow, he's talking, let's stop. And no Russians. There's always a Russian. I'm, I'm actually very sure there was a Russian There's probably a Russian, Russian yeah. <laughs> The Cabrillo supported independence, and this, combined with the fact that San Martin had the support of the provinces between Lima and Chile, led San Martin to declare the independence of Peru on the 28th of July, 1821. <laughs> 
San Martin set up a new government and he was appointed the protector of Peru. Oh my god, he took over Paddington. The Paddington of Peru. <laughs> the new government declared all Indigenous people living in Peru were now citizens. And though San Martin didn't abolish slavery, he did declare that children of slaves were emancipated. So, you, yeah. Good start. You could just Solid, better. solid 45%. Good job, guys. Yep. Solid C. You passed. <laughs> Manuela supported the new government, collecting fabric donations for the Patriot Army. She was awarded the Order of the Sun, an award and auxiliary society for women who supported the Patriots. I wonder if it's like related to the Incas, because they like worship the sun, didn't Quite they? Possibly. Maybe. Or maybe it's just like the sign of God and the sun. Anyway. Sun is in a lot of mythologies. No, it's not. <laughs> I had this student the other day and he was like, Miss, why is there a rise why is the Anzac symbol in this Russian propaganda? I was like, that's just how people did the sun back then. It's not <laughs> like I was like, I like that you're trying to like extend your knowledge, but that's just that's just a sun, dude. <laughs> Good kid. In April 1822, Manuela set out to return to Quito. Quito? Quito. A month later, Patriot forces approached the city led by Simon Bolivar, the Venezuelan general who had led forces against, alongside San Martin and who had already won independence from New Granada in 1819 and Venezuela in 1821. In May 1822, Bolivar's forces won victory over royalists in the Battle of Pin. Pichina, Pinchicha, Pichincha, and declared Quito's independence from Spanish rule. A few weeks later, Bolivar entered Quito. Quito. It sounds like he's selling the diet if I say Quito. <laughs> he's on the Quito diet. I'm putting butter in my coffee. It's the latest thing. <laughs> Manuela would have arrived in her home city around the same time, ready to celebrate the city's independence. <laughs> so we've deliberately left it until this point to tell you that Manuela was in a relationship with Simon Bolivar, the famous Venezuelan leader of no, the South no, American let's turn this around. independence no, movement. No, no. Simon Bolivar was in a relationship with Manuela. I like that. That's yeah. better. Yeah. So basically, if you Google Manuela, one of the first things in her biographies, and sometimes the only thing pretty much, is that she was Bolivar's lover and saved him twice from assassination attempts. Don't worry about those. We'll come back to them. Whee! Bolivar himself, who was given the nickname El Libertador or the Liberator, nicknamed Manuela the Liberator of the Liberator. And so following this trend, most of the histories of Manuela have focused on her impact on his revolutionary life. So her own story has been overlooked until quite recently. So it's not to say that Manuela saving Bolivar's life was not an incredibly historically significant event that could have changed the course of history. Uh, but we thought Manuela deserves a history that focuses on her, not Bolivar. But at this point in her story, Manuela's life <laughs> intersects <laughs> with Bolivar's quite a lot. So let's talk about him briefly. Who was he? I like this much better. This very much better than this is Trotsky's wife. Here she is, but here's the boy. Look at him. Look at him committing crimes against humanity. Look at him go. Wee! Bolivar was riding high by 1822, and he was celebrated for his military victories and praised for his organization, propaganda, and military insights. As we said, he was nicknamed El Libertador for his crucial role in turning the tide of Spanish-American independence wars against Spain towards the Spanish-American colonies. After his victories at Granada and Venezuela, Bolivar helped form the Republic of Colombia, there it is, in 1821. Bolivar hoped to replace the Spanish colonial system with a united state of Spanish America. Bolivar was appointed the president of Colombia, and under him, the republic claimed the areas of modern-day Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, and Panama. 
<laughs> which, which never went back to the US. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> In June 1822, Bolivar added Quito to the Republic. Why is that tripping me up? <laughs> the city... It's like five letters. Quito. Quito. The city went from Spanish rule to independence to Colombian rule in a matter of days. Whee! But at this point, this seemed to welcome change to the citizens of Quito. They welcomed... Quito. They welcomed Bolivar by decorating their houses in red, blue, and gold, the colours of the Colombian flag. Citizens filled the streets to watch him and his men parade into the city, before he was formally welcomed by the city fathers and, quote, local maidens, who dressed as nymphs and presented him with a laurel crown. This presentation was followed by a special Thanksgiving mass in the Quito Cathedral. It's made entirely of fat. In turn, this mass was followed by a private ball. So it was all very casual. It's basically me going into work on Monday. <laughs> it was during this ball, probably in 1822, that Bolivar met Manuela and they began their affair. As the circumstances of Manuela's birth show, affairs were not uncommon during this period. And it's Spain. It's the Spanish colonies. They're, they're Spaniards. You know what I mean. Keep in mind, too, that they are living through wartime when affairs tend to abound. Insert joke about Nicholas family history here. Um, if couples were discreet, many affairs were tacitly accepted. Bolivar was no stranger to an affair, and he had a long string of mistresses, a long list of ex-lovers who all thought he was insane, none of whom lasted very long. He was immediately intrigued by Manuela, who was beautiful and vivacious, and apparently didn't take herself or anything too seriously. Bolivar was less impressed by her delicious attractions than her delightful temperament and her enchanting spirit. For Manuela, her marriage to Thorn had become boring. Because he was 20 years older than she was. And it's the older days, so he's probably about to die. And British. And British. And she longed for more excitement. She fell passionately in love with the exciting Bolivar. He's no Paddington, but okay. You want to fuck Paddington? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Methinks the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> Bolivar continued to work towards independence from the Spanish. But now more out of a sense of pragmatism and the desire to boost his own fame than a genuine belief. In dependence? In independence, yeah. yeah. While in Quito, Bolivar turned his attention to Peru. You've got me saying it weird now. How do you say it? I don't know anymore. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> While in Quito, Bolivar turned his attention to Peru. Though San Martin had been fighting for Peruvian independence, the cause was failing, and Bolivar saw this as his chance to solidify his reputation as a leader of the independence movement. So, Bolivar left Quito for Guayaquil in July 1822 and met with San Martin to offer Colombian troops to fight the Spanish in Peru. So, he's kind of like, here, have some men. And just threw here, them, here's some threw them at San Martin. Here's some I prepared early. By this point, Peru was officially ruled by a patriot government stationed in Lima. But the Spanish continued to fight to take back the colony. In March 1823, after San Martin... San, I've sated him... <laughs> San Martin. In March 1823, after San Martin had resigned, the Patriot Peruvian government requested Bolivar's aid. In response, Bolivar sent 6,000 Colombian troops, but he himself did not travel to Lima until August 1823. Desperate for his help, the Peruvian government appointed Bolivar the supreme commander of the country. Do you think also, like, in a sense of pragmatism, you can't rule an independent Colombia and Ecuador and Venezuela when right next door you have a Spanish-occupied... Yeah. So he might have been like, this is shit, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's the way the pragmatism, not as opposed to, oh, I want more power. Yeah. 
Just you wait. Just you wait. Just you <laughs> wait. That's why I only skimmed them so I get excited. <laughs> During this period, Manuela remained in Quito. Much to her annoyance, she missed Bolivar and probably felt restless stuck in the city. In October 1823, having seen Bolivar only once in the last year, Manuela offered to aid Bolivar by working as an informant or liaising with the patriots in Lima. In December, Manuela joined Bolivar's permanent staff and began working as his personal archivist. Manuela was one of the few women who worked in official capacities in the armies of either the patriots or the loyalists. By accepting the official appointment as Bolivar's archivist... Manuela formally aligned, there's the heater, herself with the Patriot fight, and specifically with Bolivar and the Colombians. Manuela had officially aligned herself as a Boliv- Bolivarian. Yes. Financially, working as Bolivar's archivist gave Manuela independence from her husband, that British guy who we don't give a shit about. <laughs> While working as Bolivar's archivist, Manuela became friends with his personal secretary, Captain Juan Jose Santana. This friendship allowed Manuela to keep track of Bolivar's movements wherever they, whenever they were separated. And he was like, yeah, he's uh, totally not at his other girlfriend's house. In February 1824, a group of men from the Patriot garrison in Lima mutinied against their Patriot government. The government has, had supported Bolivar's war for independence initially, but they lost interest and so neglected to pay the troops stationed in the city, which is a bad move. You always gotta, you always pay, pay your army. Pay your little dudes, man. The mutineers demanded their back pay. And when this demand was not fulfilled, they released all the Spanish prisoners from jail and raised the Spanish flag over the port city of Calau. Ironically, you know how you got, they got the Spanish prisoners to leave the prison? I don't. I don't know if I want to know. Okay. Well, what I, I don't know. Where, I, where are you? Mm. I know this. Anyway, what they did. Your they face ra- says you're making. Shit I'm up. not. I never make stuff up. I um. They raised all the gates and they just stood there waving a red flag until all the Spanish prisoners saw the red flag and charged at it. They were enraged. I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. Okay. <laughs> Bullfighting is a barbaric, evil sport. So, the mutineers then began negotiating with a Spanish general, which eventually led to the Spanish reoccupation of Lima by March. So again, pay your troops, or they'll turn against you. And, like, they wanted to reinstall Paddington as the rightful king of Peru, but they were unable to. So what yeah. do they do instead? So, the Peruvian Congress, worried that the Spanish would take back the entire country declared Bolivar a dictator to give him extraordinary powers. And this, like, this could only end well. Didn't they do that to that Caesar guy in Rome? Shut up! <laughs> Bolivar ordered Colombian troops to leave Lima. Manuela evacuated with the troops and joined Bolivar at his new headquarters in Trujillo, 560 kilometers north of Lima, where he was planning his final campaign for independence and the liberation of Peru. In April, the city of Trujillo was abuzz preparing for the campaign. What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. What's the buzz? Tell me when do we ride into Jerusalem? When do we ride into Jerusalem? <laughs> so Bolivia, Bolivar began organizing around 8,000 troops. By the end of April 1824, Bolivar moved his troops and headquarters to Huamachuco and began preparing the force to cross the Andes. From Huamachuco, the force marched to Huaraz, where they began crossing at the Cordillera Blanca mountain range, a 200-kilometer stretch of peaks that reach up to 6,000 meters high and include over 70 glaciers, but not anymore because of climate change. While the (laughs) army marched, Manuela followed behind by about a day, like, sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. (laughs) <laughs> Taking a separate, secret, sexy route, especially as Bolivar and his troops made their way through Spanish-held villages, probably by killing them. Mm. This meant Manuela ended up travelling for longer and further than the army to meet Bolivar and Juan Coco at the end of June. 
because they were like, oh, we're killing all the Spanish. They might not like my lover coming through. If you want to be my lover, you got to kill some Spanish. On August 6th, Bolivar's forces finally engaged in battle with the Spanish in the Battle of Hunin. Though 8,000 troops assembled on both sides, the battle lasted only 45 minutes. Happens to all men. And ended up being fought only by the cavalry units. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> Bolivar's forces won a decisive victory, significantly weakening the important Spanish cavalry. After this battle, Manuela no longer followed the Patriot Army and was separated from Bolivar for several months. Other than her travel movements, we know little about what Manuela was doing during this period. On December 9th, 1824, the Patriots and Loyalists again met in the Battle of Echuco. Despite having around 3,000 less men, the battle was a decisive victory for Bolivar's forces. The Patriots lost around 370 men, while the Royalists lost nearly 2,000. you got to assume they know the terrain. Mm. That's a big part of it, I reckon. It makes a big difference. Just talking to Ralph, look at <laughs> the Spanish Viceroy and generals were taken prisoner. This effectively destroyed the Royalist Army's ability to mount any resistance to the Patriots and the Royalist leaders surrendered. All that remained in Royalist control was a small area of Upper Peru. In January 1825, General Molinieta avowed he would never surrender the territory. We will never surrender the territory, he said, but only in Spanish. Sadly for Olinieta, his forces began to defect and fall apart. Olinieta tried to fight on with a few hundred men, pursued from the city of La Paz by the Patriot Army, before being seriously injured in a skirmish at Tamulsa on April 1st, 1825. Olañeta died from his wounds, and a week later, the final royalist unit of around 500 men surrendered. Upper Peru was now named Bolivia. <gasps> I bet you can't guess who it was named after. <laughs> a small number of royalists held out at Calao until they were forced to surrender or face starvation in January 1826. Peru joined the state of Gran Colombia, which now included Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, Venezuela, and parts of Brazil. And there was never any violence in South America ever again. No, it's the all very peaceful for the end. rest of this episode. Oh, how nice. Yeah. So, lovely. what have you found on um, Twitter? <laughs> anyway, so this was the end of Spanish rule in South America, in the words of a Spanish officer, Rafael Sevilla. Thus ended that war which Spanish titans had fought against the ferocity of a numerous and battle-hardened army and, what is most terrible, against the constant treachery of Spain's bastard offspring, the degenerate Judases whose insatiable greed and ambition could always be bought by 30 pieces of silver. So they had really no hard feelings after yeah, the war Yeah, it was ended. a very rational response to the situation. Yeah. Yeah. While Bolivar looked further afield, Manuela began to feel left behind. She'd heard that Bolivar had a new, younger mistress and felt that he was deliberately putting distance between them. In April 1825, Bolivar, reappointed as dictator, <laughs> this can only end well, <laughs> began a long tour of the newly liberated territories, leaving Manuela in Lima and writing to her that he worried their affair had become too public and scandalous, and encouraged Manuela to return to her husband as was proper. Manuela's husband, Thorne, may also have asked Bolivar to persuade Manuela to return and threaten Bolivar with potential legal action if she did not. Undercutting his tone a bit, Bolivar's letters during this period also continued to include his praise for Manuela. And he failed to hide his wish that they could remain together, but he was really trying to get her to be mm -hmm. like, let's end this. Um, and this is where Manuela had a lot of agency, and she went, no, I'm I don't think we it. will. No, thank you. I'm fine. <laughs> She's like, I'm good. 
I didn't like my husband. He was real boring. He's British. I like you a lot more. Yeah. I like having fun and doing stuff. You're kind of an arsehole, but I like it. So, no, Mm. we're not ending things. By 1827, Bolivar seems to have given up trying to give her up, and Manuela moved into her own home at La Magdalena and was paid a 500 peso monthly allowance. This move, which placed her near Bolivar's headquarters, was effectively a declaration of their relationship and the acknowledgement that she was Bolivar's mistress. Leaving on her own also gave Manuela more freedom, and she developed friendships with Bolivar's officers and other staff. She was still working as Bolivar's archivists, and now, through those friendships, Manuela was now a firmly entrenched part of Bolivar's inner circle. Manuela was one of the strongest advocates of Bolivar's decisions and followed his orders carefully, even if it put her at odds with others on Bolivar's staff. In 1826, Manuela began to receive visitors on Bolivar's behalf, much as she had years earlier for Thorne. As president of Peru and one of the most powerful leaders in South America, many people hoped to plead their cases before Bolivar for help or aid. Manuela began to speak to these petitioners for Bolivar, and it was during this time she began to advocate for refugees. Manuela also began to offer aid to the men serving under Bolivar who needed money or healthcare or other help. 1826, however, saw cracks appearing in Bolivar's power. The previous year, the Peruvian Congress had reaffirmed Bolivar as dictator and postponed the country's elections. By mid-1826, many Peruvians were getting a bit sick of Bolivar's authoritarian approach, which seemed to many to be explicitly anti-Peruvian. We have a long tradition of... (laughs) We want to have a long tradition! (laughs) Many were unhappy that their country was still being run by an outsider, which is fair enough. Mm. And we have a long tradition of this! <laughs> and frustrated that official positions were generally given to Grand Colombians rather than Peruvians. It's completely different to when the Spanish bomb, Spanish Americans are given power, though. It's completely different. Totally different. It's totally different. Totally different. This led many to worry that Bolivar never planned to give Peru complete independence, but rather keep the country under the control of Colombia. Bolivar failed spectacularly at convincing the Peruvians that he was not, in fact, planning this. He essentially forced Peru to accept the constitution he drafted for Bolivia, which included a lifetime president with no elections, very limited suffrage, and not many who could do the non-existing electing, and a very complicated (laughs) system of political tiers, including tribunes, senators, and censors, who could tell people what to do. Bolivar set his sights on creating an Andean federation of Colombia, Peru, and Bolivia under his rule. Manuela was in full support of Bolivar's plans to unite... The three, the, the nations in harmony under the Avatar. Um, like and most, then the, the Bolivar nation attacks. And so, like most Bolivarians, Manuela hero worshipped Bolivar. Maybe he was really good at sex. Anyway, and supported I don't him. think that's why everyone worshipped him. Yeah, it was. Every single he person. He banged every single well, person. Well, we know he cheated him. on her. So, like, every single one of them? Yeah. That's like multiple countries worth. He's just that good. Like most Bolivarians, Manuela basically hero-worshipped Bolivar and supported him, not necessarily because she agreed with his plans, but because she was enamoured with him as a person. Does that sound familiar to anybody about anyone else in history? No, not at all. No one at all. No. That was the case for most of his friends, allies and followers. But you know who didn't find him charming? All those people worried that Bolivar planned to unite the South American republics under his dictatorial rule, just as they had once been under the rule of the Spanish. Particularly from mid-1826, anti-Bolivar sentiment bubbled and saw early attempts to overthrow El Dictador. It was a completely classic revolution. You take out one power-hungry ruler or dictator, you create a power vacuum that someone steps into and uses to advance their own authoritarian aims, and then it repeats. 
all rinse and repeat all over again. History comes around and again. That's why they're called revolutions. History never repeats. Tell myself before I go to sleep. I don't know that song. You don't know that? No. So, in January 1827, four battalions... (laughs) (laughs) Leave it in. Uh, and a cavalry squadron seized control of key government buildings in Lima and demanded unpaid wages and the release of their King Paddington. <laughs> this rebellion allowed Bolivar... <laughs> Paddington's in prison again! Let me out, Mr. Brown! Mr. Brown, I didn't do it! This rebellion allowed Bolivar's opponents the opportunity to suspend the Bolivian constitution, announce a new congress, and eject around 2,000 Colombian troops from Peru. And Paddington was released and sent to England and he was totally fine. I need to take Paddington away. I'm like really worried about him. <laughs> Carly's like, oh! <laughs> take him out of this stressful yeah. situation. This is too much stress for Paddington. I'm so sorry, Paddington. I didn't mean to. <laughs> With Bolivar in Grand Colombia during the uprising, Manuela tried to maintain support for him from her home in Lima. In late January, Manuela apparently addressed three of Bolivar's battalions dressed as a colonel and encouraged them to remain loyal to Bolivar. To help with this loyalty, Manuela began to pay officers to resist joining the rebellion. This worried the new Peruvian government, who felt their hold on power was rather tentative. And so, on the 8th of February, soldiers escorted Manuela to the women's prison at the La Nazarena's convent, where she would remain for over a month. I love you said of La Concepcion, now she's at La Nazarena's. Mm. Yeah. Manuela protested her imprisonment writing to the Peruvian consul, not Consul Drusus. You know Consul Drusus? Everyone knows Consul Drusus. I love Consul Drusus. Manuela wrote that she wasn't a criminal, nor was she a prisoner of war, so why was she being detained and interrogated? Fair question. She questioned whether there was any legitimate charges against her and quoted Article 117 of the newly reinstated Peruvian Constitution that stated all prisoners had to be told why they were arrested within 24 hours or they had to be released. Manuela kept writing to the consul that was not Consul Drusus and convinced him to give her appeal to the interim president of Peru. Eventually, her persistence paid off. She was released on the 23rd of March. Manuela's insistence that she be treated as a full citizen of Peru and her continued defence of Bolivar upset Peruvian officials, particularly the Minister of Foreign Relations, who ordered that Manuela be evicted from the country. On the 11th of April, Manuela began another return journey to Gran Colombia. Manuela arrived back in Quito towards the end of April or early March. Things were still strained between Manuela and Bolivar. Bolivar had barely written since November and she was worried their long separation had cooled his ardour. I hate that you made me say that. Ardour. You're welcome. Ardour. So Manuela was very happy when Bolivar asked her to join him in Bogota. 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 Which she reached in early February 1828. The Bogota was not as flash as Lima. It had a thriving political climate. There was a free press, not for long, I assume, <laughs> to spread political debates and ideas, and these could also be discussed among citizens in public places. Bolivar was increasingly moving away from the idea of a republic as the best way to govern Spanish America, and felt that a lifetime president and senator that could mimic constitutional monarchy from Britain was the way to go. Bolivar worried that pesky elections would lead to anarchy and tyranny, and so decided that the best way to avoid tyranny would be to encourage the countries he had liberated to support his claim to a lifetime presidency. It's funny, the more I learn about well-intentioned dictators, (laughs) you know what I mean? Ones who come in with the best of intentions and leave dead. 
I think about George Washington. Yeah. Because that, and this is a very simplistic view because of yeah. Hamilton, obviously. But like the idea that he was like, no, I can't die as the president. Yeah. Because then we won't be able to move forward. We need to prove we can go. This is the gentle transition, the soft trans. What's the word? Peaceful transition of power. <laughs> and then it's also the thing the Americans wank themselves stupid over it every year, mm-hmm. every election except the last one. Um. But the idea, they're like, well, we have a peaceful transition of power and most democratic countries around the world are like, yeah, so do we. That's the bare minimum, guys. Like, we found, we voted on Saturday and we had a new prime minister on Sunday. We might not have known exactly what the government was going to look like, but we got one. Yay! Yep. Anyway, so Bolivar This is my line. You've interrupted me. How dare you! <laughs> How dare so Bolivar also promised that when the president left office, they would appoint... No. Bolivar also proposed that when the president left office, they would appoint the next president. Shockingly, people worried about this plan, seeing Bolivar's attempts to create a pseudo-monarchy as an attempt to create a pseudo-monarchy. I mean, Hamilton also wanted lifetime presidents, so... Yeah, Hamilton was not, like, a perfect guy. I know, and <laughs> he didn't even rap in real life! Who fucking knew? What the so, I don't know where they got that idea from, you know. Uh, Manuela saw people beginning to turn against Bolivar and began reporting to him those she thought would support him and encouraging him to hold no punches when dealing with his opponents. Manuela was soon, again, one of Bolivar's most trusted advisors and acted on his behalf with petitioners and citizens seeking audiences with yeah, him. Yeah, she's his favourite because she's telling him exactly what he wants to hear. You're great and we should have you as a dictator, a yep. sexy dictator. So in April, Bolivar and his opponents got together in Okana, Okanya, Okanya, to hold a constituent assembly to decide how to modify the Grand Colombian Constitution. By May, the assembly was stuck in a stalemate, with both sides just giving up on reaching a compromise and trying to present their own vision of constitutional reform. When Bolivar's opposition looked like it would win the most support, the Bolivarians played truant and just stopped attending the sessions. Because if you can't win fair, you can just take your fucking ball and go home. Yeah. On June 9th, under Bolivar's instruction, the supporters abandoned the assembly altogether, forcing it to dissolve. This forced dissolution meant that the Bolivar's followers could call for the liberator to take on further dictatorial powers to save Colombia from its current (laughs) crisis, i.e. the crisis that Bolivar engineered. Who could have seen this coming? Me! Bolivar! (laughs) Bolivar away! Um, Around the country, his supporters passed resolutions calling for Bolivar... To assume emergency powers. Manuela did her bit to give Bolivar more power, hosting a lavish ball for his followers at the end of July 1828. At the ball, as the guests got shit-faced, someone, very possibly Manuela, suggested it would be great and not at all politically dumb idea to stage a mock trial and execution of an effigy of Bolivar's main rival, Francisco de Paula Santander, in what should in what should only belong in a sitcom, drunk guests built a dummy out of a sack of grain, stockings, and a tricorn hat. Got a nearby dean who was religious, not nor <laughs> who was religious, not James Dean, nor an academic dean, to perform the last rites, and then had soldiers form a firing squad to shoot the dummy. Shockingly, this didn't go down well with many who felt it was against the ideas of liberalism and republicanism, and many blamed Manuela for the stunt. Whether she was directly involved or not, the fact that people believed she was meant that Manuela was now seen as one of the more extreme Bolivarians. 
As one of Bolivar's confidants put it, quote, it is generally alleged that Manuela meddles in the affairs of government and that she is listened to, end quote. What, what a bold claim. Uh, a woman? She's Being listened to? Meddling? <laughs> After the leaders of a Grenadier's riot in Honda were pardoned, rumours spread that Manuela had intervened on their behalf. So, there were some truths to the rumours. Bolivar wrote to his general Cordova to downplay Manuela's influence, calling her the amiable madwoman, but not in English. But he revealed that Manuela had successfully interceded on behalf of rebels on multiple occasions. Public perception was turning against La Presidenta, as some had taken to calling Manuela. Even those on Bolivar's side worried that such rumours about her, whether true or not, would weaken Bolivar's support. Though he was doing a pretty good job of that himself. At the end of August 1828, Bolivar was declared or redeclared or re-reforced president, given the power to shake up the Colombian government and organise a new constitutional convention in January. Essentially, Bolivar was again declared a dictator, but all in all, he was, you know, on the grand axis of dictators, he was a rather mild flavour. His political enemies lost their jobs or were exiled, but there was no murder, which again, bare minimum and can come back to bite you in the arse, but props to Bolivar. Nevertheless, his opponents worried about his complete power and began plotting to get rid of him. On the 10th of August, the anniversary of Bolivar's arrival in Bogota nine years earlier, Bolivar attended a masked ball at the El Coliseo Theatre, which is really just asking to be assassinated or seduced. Or both. That's the only thing that happens at a masked ball. Mm -hmm. Assassins hid daggers in their costumes and planned to stab Bolivar while he mingled with the guests. But Manuela heard of the plot and rushed to the theatre to warn her lover. Possibly dressed in a colonel's outfit again. Or like a sexy colonel's outfit. No, just a normal colonel's okay. outfit. <laughs> Though unable to get in, Manuela got into an argument with the guards, which drew Bol Bolivar's attention, and he left before the assassins could act. But they tried again. <gasps> On September 25th, 1828, the Sociedad Filologica, a political club aligned with Santander... Who was the opponent. Who was the main opponent, yep presumably really annoyed that his effigy had been executed as a party game, planned a three-prong attack. The attackers split, in, split into three groups, with one group of 26 soldiers and civilians assigned with storming the presidential palace armed with knives, pistols and swords, because you can't be too prepared. The group took out the guards and then made their way to Bolivar's bedroom. I mean, to quote a terrorist, <laughs> your gun will run out of bullets before my knife runs out of sharp. Yeah. Anyway, Bolivar... I said you can't be too prepared. I yeah. didn't critique them. Be prepared. Bolivar knew they were coming. Manuela had been told by, about the plot by an informant a few days earlier. However, Bolivar assumed it was just another rumour that wouldn't come to pass. So he very naturally just went to bed as normal with not only his regular... with only his regular guards patrolling the grounds. If I ever become a dictator, I'm going to have the weirdest routine. So like, that's see. sensible. Yeah, right? This is where they all went wrong. Mm -hmm. And the mass murders. None of his officers, who would stay the night on occasion, were there on the 25th. It was only Bolivar and Manuela who was rather annoyed at the whole situation. She had a call, but Bolivar sent her a, hey girl, you up, text, and then insisted she come to his rather than stay at home. Plus, there was the whole, I warned you that assassins are coming for you, but you're not doing anything about it, you dumb shit, only in Spanish, vibe. Bolivar asked for a bedtime story and fell asleep around midnight. After his bar. After his bar. Legit after his bar. Oh. Ooh. That's worse. <laughs> Manuela was woken abruptly when Bolivar's dogs began barking. She, wrote, she woke Bolivar, who rushed to his bedroom with a sword, pistol, and his birthday suit on. 
because <laughs> he had a bath. But Manuela persuaded him to put on some damn clothes and escape out the window. Just as he landed on the street below, the assassins rushed into the bedroom and confronted Manuela, demanding to know where Bolivar was. Manuela calmly replied that he was in the council room. When he asked, when they asked why there was a very clearly vacated bed and open window, Manuela replied that she was just waiting for Bolivar to return on the bed and opened the window to see why the dogs were making such a fuss. The assassins demanded she show them to the council room, but she feigned ignorance of its location on the way because she was just a poor little woman. I have no sense of direction. Manuela stopped to help an injured guard and then refused to answer any more questions. The assassins responded calmly, as radicalised men tend to do, and began insulting Manuela while hitting her with the sides of their swords. Manuela continued trying to help the wounded guards, and eventually the assassins realised they'd failed and fled. Manuela ran for a doctor, and then eventually went to find Bolivar in the main plaza. Her actions impressed Bolivar, and it was after this that he declared her the Libertador, Libertadora del Libertador, or the liberator of the liberator. I love the image of him just in the plaza, like, buying some oranges. <laughs> like, I wonder how Manuel is doing. And the, the vendor's like, aren't you? And he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Politically, this assassination attempt did the opposite of what the attackers wanted. As is often the case when you try to get a dictator and fail, the dictator gets more dictatory in retaliation. Bolivar bought in passports for travel between provincial or municipal borders, cancelled teaching qualifications of any suspected conspirators, you can't trust them teachers, mm -hmm. and banned all secret societies. That didn't work though, because if they're a really good secret society, <laughs> you don't know. Nearly 60 men were arrested and interrogated for their involvement in the assassination attempt, and 14 were executed by firing squad. The military judges overseeing the executions attempted to link the attack to Santander himself and ordered his execution. After public outcry at this decision, however, Bolivar exiled his rival instead. That won't come back to bite him. In the bottom. Manuela was determined to help interrogate suspects. At least two suspected assassins were brought to Manuela's home so she could identify them. She, however, denied seeing one at the palace and claimed the other had actually helped defend her against his fellow assassins. She suggested both should be exiled rather than executed, possibly after female relatives had asked her to spare their lives. Manuela also hid suspects in her home and tried to learn about the underlying causes of the attack. Your boyfriend's shit! <laughs> Manuela received reports from spies who sent her Santander's correspondence for her to try and identify Bolivar's rivals and to pin the blame on Santander himself for the September attack. So this responsibility demonstrates the high trust that Bolivar's government had in Manuela and also I kind of feel like... She wasn't taking everything at face value. She was trying to like be like, is there something more to this attack than just... People not liking him. Yeah. Like, something's going yeah. on. Is there something we could do to fix things for them? I mean, yeah. And I guess if she's also going off him a bit, like she's like, he's kept mistress. It's like, hmm. Is she going off him a bit? Is she? Well, she was like, I don't want to come over and have sex with you tonight. And he's like, please. She was just tired. Oh, okay, sure. That's what they all said. <laughs> After the assassination attempt, Bolivar's supremacy was threatened again by uprisings and growing discontent among the wider public of New Granada. Bolivar met all rebellions in the traditional dictatorial way with his own armed forces. On top of these internal conflicts, Colombia was now at war with Peru over territorial boundaries and how much Peru owed Colombia for Bolivar's help in ousting the Spanish. And the Spanish are in Spain like, I think we dodged a bullet here, guys. <laughs> Peru wanted they got their own problems <laughs> in Spain at the moment. Ah, I hope we don't have a fascist overthrow in a few decades. <laughs> Peru, wanting to reclaim control of Guayaquil, invaded the south of Gran Colombia. 
Bolivar responded by ordering one of his generals to engage the Peruvians, who were repelled at the Battle of Taqui in February 1829. While Bolivar travelled all over, putting out fires when they arose, Manuela remained in Bogota and began working towards turning Gran Colombia into a monarchy. <laughs> like, I don't really know if I want this. <laughs> in April 1829, Bolivar suggested that the Colombian Council of Ministers get on royal tinder and find a major European power to ally with for Colombian security. For this to work, the council members believed that Gran Colombia would need to abandon republicanism. For some years, some of Bolivar's supporters had been calling for him to crown himself king, a la Napoleon. I don't know what this accent is. After the it's assass- wildly varied. It's going everywhere. <laughs> after the assassination attempt in September, after the assassination attempt in September, Moore began to see constitutional monarchy as the only way to secure political stability and restore the pre-liberation peace. The Council of Ministers felt that republicanism had failed and had led to the political instability of the last few years. But let's be real here, they hadn't actually experienced republicanism. They're no. still in a dictatorship. Yeah. And they're also seeing the past through very rose-tinted glasses. Mm. It's sort of like, well, when we were ruled by the Spanish, it was all fine. And the king was just, oh my god. It was like, all the was it fine? Or was it very controlled? <laughs> but, you know, if you're living through all this, you're going to be like, there's got to be a better way, which is valid. Bolivar himself was struggling with tuberculosis. This meant that time was running out to organise his successor. The Council of Ministers hoped to secure a European heir, preferably someone from the House of Orléans in France, who had just taken over as the French monarchy. So France has so, done a French thing. France is now ruled by the House of Orléans. The Duc d'Orléans. Yeah. So the Council of Ministers hoped to secure a European heir from the Orléans family dynasty um, as the future leader of the Colombians' constitutional monarchy. Though Bolivar supported this plan, in public he distanced himself, as the public was already quite worried about his plans to create a monarchy. So, you know, he was like, maybe I won't tell them about my plans to create a monarchy. (laughs) Manuela supported the monarchy plan, believing Bolivar to be a great leader, and and she was also a fan of French culture and language. Good for you, babe. Doesn't mean they're going to be a good king. In May 1829, Manuela held a reception for French delegates, including King Charles X's personal envoy. Throughout 1829, Manuela held parties and gatherings for Bolivar's friends and supporters, and built herself a network of young foreigners. They were charmed by her beauty and personality, and Manuela would host them in the morning, embroidering while sharing gossip and news. She also sought to ingratiate herself and Bolivar with Bogota's Catholic citizens, becoming a member of the Catholic lay fraternity, which is sort of a nun that's not celibate and lives outside the convent. So someone who believes in God but isn't a nun. Yeah, it's it's a bit complicated. I'm sure there's like vows involved. Yeah, so it's sort of like, so you're not quite a nun, but you're a bit more a nun than non-nuns. I think it's like you can have lay priests and like, yeah. yeah. So in mid-January 1830, Bolivar returned to Bogota, very sick and struggling with continued criticism of him. Oh dear. But that was the least of his problems. Venezuela were not fans of getting another monarch after they so recently got rid of the last one. Many Venezuelans began calling for Venezuela to leave Gran Colombia and become a country on its own. Seeing the rise of separatist thinking in Venezuela, many Ecuadorians and New Granadans also began to think, perhaps it's time to leave that weird guy in Colombia behind and run ourselves, only in Spanish. In response, in April, Bolivar announced his retirement and plans to go into exile in Europe. Oh, did he? He did leave Bogota and headed to the coastal city of Cartagena, 
which is a location in the great classic 80s rom-com Romancing the Stone. Manuela stayed behind. In contrast to what Bolivar said in public, there is evidence that he, Manuela, and his other supporters believed his retirement would be temporary and it would only be a matter of time before he would return to power of a Gran Colombia. So also in April, a new government was elected that gave more power back to Bolivar's old rivals, the Santanderistas. With key positions in government, public offices and the media, the Santanderistas increased their criticism of Bolivarians, attempting to destroy any remaining support for Bolivar, in case he did decide to come back. As part of their campaign, the Santanderistas targeted Manuela, trying to undermine her. One memorable episode came in June 1830 as part of the Corpus Christi holiday. The holiday had long been a time for people to critique public figures alongside the religious elements of it. Uh, this was generally through crude drawings or caricatures set up by the main religious decorations, like altars. In 1830, the local sheriff made sure that these caricatures included Bolivar and Manuela as a would-be king and queen with down with despotism and down with tyranny written alongside the figures which were placed on the side of a fireworks display, so would also be blown up at the end of the night. When Manuela heard about this, she was furious and rode to the plaza where the caricatures sat, dressed again as a colonel and accompanied by servants and bodyguards dressed as military personnel. Her guards brandished knives and bayonets while Manuela herself brandished her pistol as she circled the display and threatened to shoot the sheriff's men guarding it. The sheriff's men counterattacked by attempting to bayonet Manuela's horses, which is rude because the horses did nothing. And the theatrical skirmish only ended once more militia men arrived and arrested Manuela's entourage. So she finally went home when she had no one left standing by. I feel like it was also like, I'm not mad, I just want you to take them down. It's fine, it's fine, I'm not mad, just take them down. Yeah, I'm not bothered, I'm not bothered. So only a few days later, Manuela again attempted to defend herself and Bolivar from public criticism during a celebration for the new president. Sitting on her balcony sewing as the celebration passed below her on the street, Manuela began to hear cries of down with despotism and tyranny and responded by apparently calling down to the crowd that the only real president was Bolivar. Supporters of the new president began to yell back at her, quote, but soft, what bullshit through yonder balcony, bro? Sorry. But soft, what bullshit through yonder balcony breaks? Manuela's servants, in response, threw firecrackers down into the street, which is a great de-escalation de tactic. Mm -hmm. And so people on the street threw rocks back up, which again... Great de-escalation tactic. It is a great one. Yep. I do it myself in the classroom. <laughs> Soon, one of Manuela's servants ran out into the street, threatening the crowd with a rifle. Next step in the de-escalation yeah. handbook. And then the final step, the pistol of existence. He was soon joined by Manuela and her own rifle, who apparently only calmed down with her. A friend of hers arrived on the scene and convinced her to go back inside. So the press had well and truly turned against Manuela, which I wonder why. Some of it valid, some of it not. <laughs> Reports of her attempt to take down the caricatures during Corpus Christi were written about as proof of her, quote, unhinged state and further evidence of the evils of Bolivar's rule. One article published a day after the balcony incident called for Manuela to be arrested for sedition. Manuela responded to this article by publishing a broadside a week later addressed to the public. Here she argued that while she had perhaps lost her temper when provoked, yeah. she had done nothing illegal. Manuela then turned to addressing the Santanderistas, writing, quote, You may call my hot-headedness a crime. You may insult me. You may thusly satisfy your thirst for vengeance but you have not succeeded in making me despair. 
You can do whatever you want to me personally, except make me retreat even a little in my respect and friendship for, as well as gratitude to, General Bolivar. In that regard, you will never make me fear or waver. End quote. Wow, that's a good quote. Well done. Hmm? Very nice. At the end of June 1830, the national authorities demanded Manuela hand over Bolivar's archive. Remember, she was officially his archivist, if you've forgotten. She, of course, refused, arguing the archive was private property and could not be confiscated by the government. Unlike those pictures people had drawn of her and put on private property. (laughs) By the middle of the year, in response to the ever-increasing anti-Bolivar sentiment, Manuela decided it was bloody time to bring him back. (laughs) She posted flyers around the city, the tried and true strategy for when you've lost your pet, calling, calling Bolivar the founder of the Republic. Another strategy was to try and get some battalions on side. Manuela sent her servants to a union made up of many Venezuelans who'd worked for Bolivar, and the servants came with gifts and messages, including pro-Bolivar pamphlets, for the soldiers to read. Much of Bolivar's early support came from loyal soldiers, and Manuela hoped to capitalise on that again. Manuela began collaborating with anti-government figures who wished to bring Bolivar back. She really is a Bolivar babe, isn't she? She really is, yeah. That was wrong before. (laughs) This group, mostly conservative upper-class men, were raising their own militias and recruiting the same battalion that Manuela had bribed. Indeed, Manuela's support of the rebels would have been crucial in bringing in other supporters, as despite some of Manuela's recent actions, she was still held in high regard by many of... by many due to her charitable efforts while Bolivar was president. For the government, Manuela's support of the rebels was a threat. In July, the Minister of the Interior began a criminal investigation into her actions. On the 17th of July, 37 years to the day after Charlotte Corday's trial and execution in France, Manuela was indicted for subversion, insulting and attacking the public with weapons, and, quote, acting brusquely in a way alien to her sex, end quote. This is an intergalactic episode. (laughs) She was charged with dressing like a man and breaking the rules of modesty and morality, which is another interesting parallel to Charlotte Corday, whose revolutionary actions were also dismissed because she was a woman who act- acted like a man and thus unnaturally. And Charlotte of Arc. Yes. I'm doing a thing that we like to uh, do where we call out to our past episodes. Oh my god, maybe you could listen to the Charlotte Corday <laughs> episode, which was recorded on my bedroom floor. And your bedroom floor. It was. Yes. Because we were in lockdown at the time. But unlike Charlotte, Manuela managed to avoid being arrested for a few weeks at least after being charged. So there was public support for Manuela and criticisms of her indictment appeared in broadsides, questioning the validity of the charges. Two days after the indictment, an officer arrived at Manuela's home to arrest her. She refused, <laughs> arguing she was too sick and couldn't leave her home. Oh, no, thank you. Which no. somehow worked. I like to think it was like... I'm sick. And then the officer arresting was like, boo, you whore. No, I'm actually imagining, like, he opens the door and he's, like, got the handcuffs and she's like, oh, no, not today, thank you. And she just closes <laughs> the door <laughs> and, like, goes back to bed and addressing me. I'm like, well, what a nice young man. <laughs> not today, thank you. I don't want any. <laughs> boo, you whore. So somehow this strategy worked. So no, thank you. In early today. August, she was still at large trying to appeal the charges, but it wasn't much longer until she agreed to turn herself in and be exiled from the city. She probably agreed to turn herself in and be exiled because she'd she'd had several death threats made against her, um, and there was the increasing violence in the city, and so she probably went, you know what, I'm going to get out of here. I'm a bounce. I'm I'm a bounce. It's time. Oh, no, not today. No, thank you. (laughs) 
If only she said that earlier. <laughs> While Manuela went into exile, the rebels combined militias, went toe-to-toe with the government forces and forced the resignation of El Presidente. This was a sign for Bolivar's supporters, who gathered in early September 1830 to call for Bolivar to return from exile, a mere 37 years and a few days after <laughs> Charlotte's execution. This was met with celebration in the streets. Manuela, who Bolivar told to remain her city of exile, began setting up her home to receive her lover. You know I hate the word lover, right? I know, I do. And Hey boy! As I was writing this episode, I was like, what do we call it? Because partner isn't the it right... It implies just, equality. Yeah, and she's, pa- partner isn't yeah. the right description for a relationship. And they're not married. She's his mistress, but it's more than that. And, and there's no word for, like, the mistress's boyfriend. This yeah. isn't, like, the guy giving her... Yeah. The, yeah. So, lover, in the end, just... It worked out as the best word. I know. I just never liked it. I know. I understand. Bolivar's lover. Oh. Um... Yeah. Even though... No, let's give him some. Manuela, who Bolivar told to remain in her city of exile, began setting up her home to receive her boyfriend, even though she longed to return to Bogota. Manuela never had that reunion, reunion with Bolivar. On the 17th of December, Bolivar died on his way to Bogota from his tuberculosis, though Manuela likely didn't hear of his death until January 1831. During the month-long period of official mourning, Manuela... Everyone's like, check, he's fucking dead. Um, Manuela remained in exile to mourn Bolivar. Possibly she also attempted to commit suicide through the use of a poison snake bite a la Cleopatra. Poison. I believe you meant poison. I did mean poison. I know, venomous. Anyway. Um, but it's like, by trying to do the Cleopatra thing, it's kind of like acknowledging that he was a dictator. Oh, yeah. It's Mark, Mark Antony. Antony and Julius Caesar yeah. were both, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, so, do, I do question whether she did this. It sounds like a bit of a... And she was so crazy sad she tried to kill herself with a snake. Because this woman has guns and knives yeah. in the house. Like, I, I think she could have been very possibly suicidal. Um, just, it seemed like it was a... She's been exiled. Her lover's dead. Like, it's not a good situation. Yeah, but it's also like... But it, it's, that's not the way you go. Interestingly, historically speaking, men are more likely to use a violent method, like mm. stabbing or shooting themselves to kill themselves, versus... Have we got a suicide warning? We do have a suicide warning. Um, whereas women do tend to use poisons more. Yeah. And usually, maybe knives or razors. But the issue is, of course, it's about accessibility. And through a lot of history, women haven't had the access to firearms that men mm. might have had. But they do access poisons because they're dealing with like the household chemicals. So, yeah. But they're not dealing with a huge supply of poisonous snakes. I know. So it just seems less likely to try and kill herself when you're in Colombia, which I believe has a lot of cliffs, which mm. are very handy for mm-hmm. killing yourself, mm-hmm. and rifles, and people who don't like you. You can yeah. just go for a bloody wander yeah. saying, I love Bolivar. Right like, I, I think the the imagery is very much sort of like this seductress using the snake biting her on the breast to kill her. I love how you're doing motions. (laughs) This is an audio format. But yeah, and it's like, it's like, and look how ridiculous she is using this snake to bite her And Manuela was ridiculous, but in a very different way. I don't know, she's like a very balanced and sensible young woman (laughs) to me. Like, very dramatic, but in a different way to this. Yeah. Like, ride or die for Bolivar. Yeah. To the point where she, also she probably has TV, she probably just wait. Um, yeah. So, yeah, if if she was going to do something... Well, what was that facial expression, Hannah? Yeah. She was going to do something dramatic. 
I don't think it would be this. Yeah, it would be like she would shoot herself yeah. or like cut her. Oh god, I'm so sorry. And she would like extenuate herself on like a statue of him or something. Yeah, yeah. or she'd like kill herself in a masculine fashion, like because you know she was dressing as like in Air colonel's uniform. Masculine. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. Like she was dressing in the in the colonel's uniform, and so she'd do sort of some sort of like military suicide in some sort. Yeah, of way. Uh, and also I question this because this story came from a French writer. Ah, that explains it. Nah, she didn't try to kill herself with a snake. <laughs> so You should have led with that. I'm like, nah, she didn't try that at all. How French. Oh, right. by the way, I always mix up Simon Bolivar with another French writer. You know the guy I'm thinking of? Simone Beauvoir? I mix up <laughs> Simone Bolivar and Simone Beauvoir. <laughs> because I'm Nicola. Look, I can see the similarity. I mean, they're both inappropriate with young women. There's so. Simone, Simon, and radical thinkers yeah. who are dead now. There's, that's a, there's a lot of them. No, there's only two. Around March 1831, Manuela returned to Bogota and now had to contend with the issue of many millennials <laughs> not having any money. And also the final end of Grand Colombia. The avocados grow down there, so like it can't be the avocados that are the problem. No, it's it's the poached eggs. Ah, yes. yes poached yes. eggs worse than dictatorship. <laughs> I love poached eggs. After Venezuela and Ecuador left the Union, the republic had crumbled. What republic? <laughs> it's not left anymore. Yeah. After Bolivar's death, most saw no reason to reignite his cause for unity, and they were tired of the constant war that had been part of building Grand Colombia. Valid. By May, the Colombian government was again firmly in the hands of the Santanderistas, who went after any remaining Bolivarians, throwing officers out of the army and exiling all of them. In June, Santander himself was invited to return from exile and be given back his military rank and citizenship. This is why you kill your opponents. Yeah, we knew that from the Trotsky episode. Yeah. yeah. In this environment, Manuela felt particularly vulnerable. Santander returned in 1833 as president, only to be met with a planned uprising from old Bolivarians who... To overthrow him. And all the regular people are like, for fuck's sake! Literally. Christ. In October 1833, 18 men were executed for their part in the plot, with another 28 sentenced to hard labour. Authorities suspected that Manuela had been part of planning this conspiracy. Though it's unclear if she was actively involved, she was probably at least aware of the conspiracy, um, and discussions had probably taken place in her house. During the trials of the conspirators, Manuela was again ordered into exile, officially as a punishment for her 1830 indictment, which had been accidentally suspended in the political turmoil around Bolivar's death. Mm -hmm. So basically they went, we don't have to give you new charges because we'll just use those old ones. <laughs> Here's one I prepared earlier. Because we never technically told you you could come back. So yeah, get out. True. So Manuela, however, put off leaving as long as she could, saying she needed to prepare for her journey back to her home of Quito, though she was probably also attending to clear her name. The authorities finally got fed up with Manuela's delaying and on the 13th of January 1834, one day and 160 years before I was born, <laughs> a group of soldiers... Is that why you got your phone out to do the math? I was checking it, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's maths. The authorities finally got fed up with Manuela's delaying and on the 13th of January 1834, a group of soldiers, convicts and the police chief arrived at her door to escort Manuela out of Bogota. Manuela being Manuela met this group armed with two pistols, warning that she would shoot any man who came too close. She also later attempted to use a knife, but she was eventually overpowered. 
Her hands bound, Manuela was taken to the women's prison for the night. Early the next morning, she was escorted out of the city and kept under guarded escort until she boarded a ship for Jamaica in early April. So basically, I just want to... They took her on guard for a very long time, yeah. leaving through multiple cities because they're like, we've got to make sure she doesn't this come back. This is January and yeah. this is April. Yeah, like multiple yeah. months of travelling for a very long time. <laughs> they're like, no, 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 no. We're going to keep uh, an eye on we've you. We've met you before, Manuela. <laughs> The U.S. ambassador was actually really impressed that it took 20 soldiers a whole day to subdue Manuela and said that she was, quote, as brave as Caesar, end quote, but in American. The government was criticised for the force of her expulsion and that Manuela had not been allowed to say goodbye to her friends. From exile, Manuela denied the charges against her and even went so far as to claim that she had nothing to do with politics, writing, quote, I loved the liberator and venerate his memory, and for this I have been banished by Santander. End quote. She suggested that Santander had given her more credit than she was due, writing, quote, He says I am capable of anything, but he is deceiving himself miserably. Nothing can be done by a poor woman like me. Huh. End quote. Which, sure, Jan. Like, sure, Juan. Sure. Sure, sure Juan. <laughs> <laughs> so with the help of an old friend, Juan José Flores, who is now handily the president of Ecuador, Manuela was given permission to return to her native Quito. She arrived at the port of Guayaquil in early October 1835. Unluckily for Manuela, her friend had recently lost the presidency of Ecuador, and halfway to Quito, Manuela learned that the new president had declared she should be detained and then exiled from Ecuador. Part of the reasoning given for this order was that Manuela had only returned to the country to avenge the death of her half-brother and so she was to be exiled to maintain the peace. In reality, the president likely worried that Manuela would continue her rebellious activities in Ecuador. Which is fair. This was a particular worry because recent unrest had been, in part, driven by wives and other female relatives of the government's opponents. The Ecuadorian president worried that Manuela would further agitate the women to do further unwomanly politics. I I do love this, like, they're continually like, hey, maybe the women might be a threat. (laughs) Nah. Nah. Can't be. Nah. It's just that one weirdo. Yeah. Manuela called bullshit. She argued she'd done nothing illegal in Ecuador. <laughs> in Ecuador. <laughs> that she had no, that only, she had no plans to avenge her brother and that she was only a, quote, poor, unfortunate woman on her way back to her native soil to visit friends and relatives and to bid these farewell, perhaps for the last time, end quote. But she was unsuccessful in her appeal to the president. Instead, the president doubled down on his charges against her, citing his knowledge of Manuela's, quote, character, talents, vices, ambition, and prostitution, end quote. We stand a legend. The government (laughs) worried that if Manuela remained in Ecuador, that she would give her support to their opponents, and they worried Manuela would be able to revive the revolutionary flame. (laughs) This view reflected not only Manuela's reputation, but also the fear many men had in South America, that women were forcing their way into the man's world of politics. Women's participation in the wars of independence threatened the ideas of men and women that have underpinned South American society since colonisation. In November 1835, Manuela boarded a ship to Peru, eventually landing in Pater for her exile. The city was doing well, and Manuela found herself amongst some of her old friends. She also made new friends, very good for her, including with the governor, and was well respected by the authorities. However, Manuela was running short on funds, and was also, understandably, prone to periods of sadness, feeling her isolation from her home keenly. Yet when given the chance to return to Ecuador around 1840, when Flores was again president, 
She was reluctant to return after her past experiences and worried about continued opposition to her. She remained in Pater and continued to send updates on the Peruvian political situation to Flores. While in Peru, Manuela became involved in a grand pro... Oh, for fuck's sake, Manuela, just retire. <laughs> a plan... It's nine o'clock. I'm going to bed. Literally <laughs> been writing this today. I was like, stop doing stuff. I'm tired. <laughs> Can't someone assassinate this woman? A plan... So the grand plan was a plan by a former Bolivarian grand general. Grand project. The Grand Project. It was to rebuild the Bolivia-Peru Republic and it was planned by General Santa Cruz. An exile in Ecuador, Santa Cruz convinced Flores to support the project. Manuela corresponded with key figures in the Grand Project, acting as an intermediary and an informant. In a letter to Flores, letters even, Manuela encouraged him to launch an Ecuadorian invasion of Peru and she reported on the state of the Peruvian army. It appears that Manuela's support for Ecuadorian expansion came not just from her friendship with Flores, but also by her growing self-identification as an Ecuadorian. Exile from where she was born, Manuela, like many exiles, developed a very strong sense of nationalism, idealism almost, with her home country. Among the Ecuadorian exiles and emigres in Paita, Manuela was a respected and influential member of their community. Much as she did earlier for Bolivar, Manuela interceded on behalf of individuals, using her influence with Flores to argue for exiles to be allowed to return to Ecuador. Ultimately, this did not work, because (laughs) Flores was ousted by his enemies and went into exile in Europe, despite Manuela's attempts at unearthing the conspiracies against him among her small Ecuadorian expat community. After Flores' defeat in 1845, 100 years (laughs) before the end of World War II, And no longer having the personal connection to the big political players, Manuela finally Finally. (laughs) grew tired and disillusioned with politics. Manuela was now also suffering from various health issues, including a hip injury which had left her without the use of her legs. Well, that's a bad injury if it's both of them. Yeah, it was, they're not sure 100%, but it's dislocation and or shattering. And she's in a small town in Peru in 1840s and poor. And they so, haven't invented medicine yet. Yeah, so yeah. medical help, not easy to come by. She also could have just like had a really severe arthritis. Yeah, possibly, yeah. yeah. Um, so alongside the constant pain, this would have taken a mental toll on the woman who had ridden a horse into argument <laughs> many times. Oh God, Bolivar and Manuela are fighting again. Get the fucking shovel. She's in the <laughs> dining room on the horse. Christ. <laughs> Manuela would... Manuela was also increasingly destitute. Then, in February 1847, she received news of her husband's murder. Remember that guy? Hey! She's been married the entire Jeff! time. Thorn. Thorn had been living in Lima still. We, we stand a king. And had been <laughs> stabbed to death by unknown assailants in the grounds of his home while strolling with his mistress. And then you bet Manuel's like, how dare he cheat on me? And it's like, um... <laughs> well, in her years in exile, Manuela had begun writing to Thorn, and the two had developed a tentative friendship. After his murder, Manuela donned a widow's black and was very offended that he was murdered, wanted to find out why, <laughs> and also asked an attorney to look into anything she might be entitled to as the widow of a British citizen. But Thorne had been clear in his will. Manuela was entitled to the 800,000 pesos of her dowry and nothing more. How much is that? No, 8,000, sorry. So, to supplement her dwindling money... Manuela began selling keto-style crafts and recipes. the Peruvian community. <laughs> she remained a respected member of the Ecuadorian community in Pater and enjoyed hosting small gatherings in her home. 
And June, hey, I'm glad you gave me this bit because you know I love a mass outbreak. You're welcome. In June, a historical outbreak. In June 1856, Manuela grew very ill, possibly with diphtheria, which was sweeping the north of Peru. On November the 23rd, however many hundreds of years before the assassination of JFK, Manuela died at the age of 59. She was buried with other diphtheria victims. Love that you're laughing through her death. <laughs> I'm glad she's dead. I'm tired. <laughs> Sorry, Colombia and Peru and Ecuador. She died at 59. She was buried with other diphtheria victims in a mass grave outside the town, and now no one knows exactly where it is. After oh, I actually don't know where the grave is. I just don't know which one's her. Yeah. The one with the shitty hips. After her death, Manuela's contribution to the independence movement and the political turmoil of Gran Colombia was forgotten. Any mentions of her were focused on Manuela as Bolivar's lover only. The influence of feminist thinking in Latin America in the 1980s and onwards, however, has rehabilitated her image, and Manuela was seen as a feminist icon for her role in the Spanish independence wars. She has become a feminist role model as well as inspiration for modern-day activists. In 1998, a mere four years after we were born... In a protest against Ecuador's political and economic neoliberal reform policies, a procession of women rode in horseback dressed as Manuela in a colonel's uniform. Fucking same, girls. Same. (laughs) Manuela has appeared in literature, in novels and poems, including a poem by Pablo Neruda, The Unburied Woman of Pater, elegy dedicated to the memory of Manuela Sayan's lover of Simon Bolivar, which is a bit of a wordy title. She's been immortalised in opera and movies and appears in the 2019 Netflix show Bolivar. I thought you could also see echoes of her in Frida Kahlo, who also had a very powerful, politically active husband slash lover, who herself, you know, suffered at his hands through all his affairs. And even, like, the idea of this powerful woman who becomes hated, like Evita. Yeah. Which, for some reason, was played by Madonna in that movie. Yeah, that that bit's weird. But yeah, I did have Evita kind of in my head as I was writing this, really. I only know one line from Evita. Is it Don't Cry For Me, Argentina? Yeah. I'm not gonna sing it. I've lost my voice. I've been talking all day. Um, yeah, that was really good, man. Well done. I found that really interesting. Yeah, yeah. She did. She did a lot of stuff. She did a lot of stuff, and we know about it, which is nice. What we a do good know change. About her. I love that we can only see each other's like noses over the top of our laptop. It's very hard to write about her without bringing in Bolivar too much. It's hard. Like, it is hard. Yeah. It's like I want this episode to be about her, but even the biography on her, which is very good, recommend. I'll put it in the show notes. For Gloria Bolivar, The Remarkable Life of Manuela Sanz, yep. 1797 to 1856. Even, even the biography, it keeps talking about Bolivar. You kind of, it's just like... And it's like, you can't disconnect her from him. But you can't disconnect him from her, which is the key thing. Yes. And like, as long as you talk... That's true. And like we were talking about, I wonder if we ourselves have ever been reading about a male historical figure like maybe Monash or Jefferson and you yourself skip over the bits about the women in his life not like because you're looking for certain facts maybe and then you're like they never write about his wife and it's like they have but you skipped it Mm. or it's in the letters at the back but you didn't read the letters at the back of the Monash biography because you didn't want her and it was really (laughs) fucking heavy so you left it at the McDonald's like women women have been context Mm. In a lot of men's biographies. And and they do get underplayed. Like, thanks so, to my wife who typed yeah. some time and you're so I, want, like, I wanted to put Bolivar as context in Manuela's biography. Yeah. I love that idea. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So, that, that's our episode. Woo! We've been women of war. We have been women of war. Women of the podcast war. And we are on the Twitter and the Facebook. You can just Google women of war podcast and it should yeah. come up. We appear. We appear. And you Google us. And if you Google us, it like something, 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 statistics, something, numbers, yeah. algorithm. Or S- not. You don't have to do SEO. that. SEO. 
I don't know. Yeah. And you can also not do that and just enjoy listening to the podcast. You can. Uh, if you want to leave us a review on our podcast, that'd be really nice. We would love that. We like reviews. Please. Praise. Yeah. Praise me. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening and all your support and feedback. We really appreciate it. We do. Thank you for listening and we will catch you in a fortnight. See you in a fortnight. Bye. Bye. So we were both right. Yeah. We can cut that whole bit out. I'll put it at the end. I don't give a shit. Okay. Gito. <laughs> Sounds like a Pokemon. Gito, Gito. Sorry, Ecuador. That was the longest. It was like, got to build up the channel. <laughs> you might don't know how to pronounce the name of this city in Ecuador. <laughs> and you didn't see if it had like a black spotlight, like iris opening. Like, Gito. <laughs> okay. That man's going to come murder me tonight. <laughs> Here, you want to say the name of the capital city of Ecuador. <laughs> I'm glad you got my mum's phone number now. You can call him. Like, I'm so sorry Nicola was murdered by the keto man. <laughs> Stop laughing. People are dying. <laughs> Bolivar continued to work towards independence from the Spanish, but now out of more of my broken And the desire to boost his own fame and genuine belief. While in keto. Okay, I'm good. <laughs> are we still recording? We're still recording. <laughs> And get this from another dictator. I just wanna rule your country. I've gotta make you understand. Never gonna give you up. Never gonna let you go. Never gonna let you go. <laughs> let it go. Alright. Very singy the last couple of weeks. We have been. I've been singing in the classroom more as well. Mm. Maybe my medication works. <laughs>